Hello and welcome back to the Slice of Pie podcast with me, Pete Jackson. There's been a wee break after season one while I record some more guests and get the head down in the delight that is audio editing. But it's with absolute delight I bring you this first episode of season two. And for a brand shiny new season, you need a guest befitting of the occasion. And Dr. Jamie Barker is just the person for the job. Former chair of the British Psychological Society's Division of Sport and Exercise Psychology and Pracademic with over 20 years of consultancy, lecturing, research, presenting and working in all manner of domains from Premier League football and academy cricket to supporting the British Paralympics team in Rio and from working in sports to business to the military and many other performance environments besides. Jamie is also the author of multiple books, including The Psychology of Soccer, More Than Just a Game, which came out this year in 2020 in partnership with Joe Dixon, Richard Thelwell and Ian Mitchell. So go and check that out if you're into psychology, if you're into soccer or if you're into both. Jamie is also one of the nicest blokes around and kindly gave enough time to fill two episodes worth of insight and experience. So in a similar vein to the social identity episode with Matt Slater and Chris Hartley, we'll have a home and away leg, both about 45 minutes per episode with one pause at the end to summarise and reflect. So if you like this one, stay tuned for part two on the conversation down the road. By the way, those looking forward to part two of the social identity episode with Matt Slater and Chris Hartley, it will be out around the start of October and thank you for being so patient. The first part is one of the most listened to episodes in the first season, so really looking forward to hearing your thoughts and ideas on part two when it is out. But there's lots of great guests in season two before we get to that, including my guest in this episode, Dr. Jamie Barker, fellow trainee Louise Byrne, Elliot Newell from the English Institute of Sport, Richard Waddell, Head of Leadership Solutions at Hanover Search and former British Army officer, and Ismail Pedraza, one of the foremost researchers and applied practitioners in the growing area of esports. So I cannot wait to get all these episodes edited and out into the podcast sphere in the next couple of months. Right. So season two. The majority of season two has been recorded in or as we were first coming out of lockdown, so there will be lots of references to that, which I don't see as a bad thing. It's been such a tremendous shock to society and to us individually that continuing to look back on how it's affected everyone is hugely beneficial. It will probably be a while until we fully process the myriad effects it's had on different people, in different jobs, in different parts of society, in different parts of the world. In this first episode, myself and Jamie somehow start in the world of lockdown homeschooling and end up talking about the benefits of building your network and learning from others. It's a great hitchhike through some of Jamie's experiences and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed participating in it. Enough preamble, it's time to jump into the start of season two and this conversation with Dr. Jamie Barker. Jamie, how are we? I'm all good, thank you, Pete. Yeah, not too bad, I guess, during the, uh, given it's raining outside and, uh, you know, given that we're hopefully coming out of lockdown now. But uh, yeah, all good, thank you. 
Yes, yeah, it seemed that when lockdown was happening, it was 25 degrees, blazing sunshine outside. Now we're actually allowed outside. It's decided to go to Wimbledon. Maybe it's because this is kind of Wimbledon test cricket time of year. It's decided to rain. Yes, and I think quite ironically as well, you know, our, our kids have, have kind of finished for the school holidays and, of course, it now decides to rain. So when they could go back to school and when they were doing a bit of school, of course, the weather was great, but now they're at home, <laughs> it decides to rain. So uh, there's a sense of irony there, I think, about that, that whole thing. Yeah, sod's, sod's law. Sod's law, exactly, yeah. So how have you found that that period? Let's let's get that out of the way. How how did you find the lockdown period? How did you how did you navigate it? Yeah, a, yeah, doing a lot of reflection, I think, around um, around that period, and I think what started off as you know being oh a little bit weird and a little bit wacky in some ways, um, you know, quite quickly turned into sort of mundane. Um, really routined and very structured. Um, I think one of the stresses for us in particular as a family was trying to structure schoolwork for, for the kids um, in amongst trying to maintain our work as well. So for me personally, work went um, all online as, as for, for a lot of people, but it seemed to be that, you know, we were having lots of time sitting, Zoom calling, FaceTiming. So, you know, not whilst I would spend quite a bit of time sat down, I think that started to plague me a little bit in terms of, um, you know, just feeling a little bit down and, you know, um, felt fatiguing actually, going from one call to the next to the next. Um, I think the opportunity to do a bit of exercise was well received um, and well exploited, certainly by us as a family, I think. Mm. That that was really integral. And, and paradoxically, I think, encouraged well, we'd be an active family anyway, but I think it encouraged us even more so to really be active and to consider the well-being aspect of just going for a walk. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, physically demanding, but let's just go for a walk as a family. Let's try and have a bit of fun in that in that period if we could. Um, so that, yeah, so, so that has been been challenging. And then work, you know, we, we all of the stuff that we were doing, so teaching went online very quickly. Um which wasn't an issue for me, having taught online for a long period of time. But then also we started to do quite a lot of consultancy work online, having never met clients before. And, okay. you know, that, that in itself, I think, challenged the status quo around some of the ideas that, you know, you've got to develop rapport and you can only do that by being around and, and gaining entry is about being seen and visible. Whereas we had none of that because we couldn't. And, and on reflection, you know, I think it has certainly changed my considerations around the use of, online as, as a way of delivering and um, and you know working as a practitioner so some some positives for sure um, but equally you know some challenges and, and and as I say it was around you know trying not to put too much pressure on yourself I think because certainly from the school perspective we were like most parents probably trying to you know give the kids the best experience that they could knowing quite quickly that we probably couldn't and it was about how you mitigate that and mm. I think trying to become quite rational and say look you know we're doing all we can here um, with the support of the school and you know just hoping that 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 will be okay rather than I think you know going for this well you've got to be doing maths between 10 and 11 and, and sharing that with with other parents I think that they had similar challenges and um, yeah so a weird world that we're in isn't it at the moment lots of things have been cancelled 
Um, we were supposed to be going to Australia for four weeks uh, to, to to stay at the University of Queensland. Um, obviously, that that has been postponed. Trips with oh no, yeah. So family family trip as well. Um, oh, I bet I bet that was a long time in the organising as well. It was, yeah. And, and we were supposed to be going on uh, at the end of July. Um, so yeah, everyone was looking forward to that. Um, but we've postponed that. Hopefully, that'll occur next year if, if things change. Okay. Um, lots of consultancy work, you know, trips with teams and stuff it was was cancelled, obviously. Um, which you know, in some ways, was was didn't feel too bad about because I suppose the last maybe ten years of my life, you know, a lot of a lot a lot of summers have been spent where you know I I would be away for a period of time. And whilst it's great, it it was quite liberating to say, well, I've got a bit of space in my diary now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and feeling comfortable with that space, I think, rather than try and fill it, just going actually, there's a bit of breathing space here to maybe do some of the things that I've perhaps wanted to do, you know, from a, a personal, a family, and a, and a work perspective. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it could be a hell of a lot worse for for me. Um, you know, maintained a, a job, employment, and you know, and so forth. So, there's a lot of positives for sure. Yeah, it's interesting that I've heard that. I don't know how to describe it. These phases that you you talked about, the initial it being kind of quite weird, wacky, almost even kind of novel. Yeah. Um, I've heard others almost describe it as quite exciting to to change how they're working, then how that then quickly makes way for a, I know others have described it as a new normal, but a a new type of stru- a new type of structure, which then with the the limitations around actually getting out and, and seeing people then becomes kind of quite claustrophobic and quite quite mundane as as you've put so I've, it's interesting to hear that um from from people in different work streams uh, and different occupations describe these kind of similar phases to it yeah i can definitely relate to that the, the phase aspect and and definitely that idea that it being quite novel um to start with and i think it is that you know there is a novelty sense it's certainly shaped or will shape how I think we, and when I talk about we, I talk about, you know, the collective of maybe universities might do stuff. Um, It certainly shaped how, you know, I've been involved in work with the BPS, you know, uh, um, meetings have have been online and I think they've still been effective. I've done two PhD vivas during lockdown, both by distance and and whilst they've, they've been great, you know, for me, that's probably one thing I would like to retain as an examiner because I think there is an element of ceremony or should be an element of ceremony to those type of events. Mm. And I think that can actually be really done in person. But, but that said, the other stuff, meetings, committee meetings, you know, um, I, I'd be more than happy to, you know, to do those with the comfort of my own home or the office rather than, you know, um, be terrorising up and down the country. Um, mm. and spending you know a lot of money on train tickets or or petrol and you know the environmental um, downside of that as well so I think it's, mm. it's a good point made me realize that I can I think we can still be effective by doing things differently and I think that's quite liberating as well that, that this is an opportunity you know it's a little bit like Dweck stuff isn't it? it's an opportunity to grow rather than well no we should always do what we've done before and um, uh, you know it, it, we're quite fixed in how we see stuff so I'd like to think that it will shape how we do things but like I said I think there are some things activities that probably have you know it'd be quite difficult to 
to, to think of a different way to do them. But um, yeah, no, it definitely relate to the phase stuff, Pete, for sure. Mm. Yeah. And um, as a, someone who's worked in higher education for a lot of your life, the educating the, the kids, um, <laughs> you're in a good position. You're in a good position to take your, your skills in, into the home. I'm sure it wasn't as, oh. I'm sure it wasn't as simple as that. Oh no. <laughs> no. No, not at all. Yes, in many senses, if only it was, yeah, take, you know, um, that easy. But um, I think what we try to do is just be supportive, I think, and, um, and yeah, try to, yeah, provide that support, encouragement, and where possible, you know, try to give the specific information that the kids are required. But, yeah, it's a kind of a very different way of learning, I think, to probably how we would work in higher education and again that was I found that interesting just to reflect on you know the level of um, not necessarily structure but how things are done at, at you know, primary and secondary schools in comparison to maybe how things are done at higher education and you know I found that interesting um, to, just to understand the, the differences and, and or similarities. Mm. Yeah putting on a new hat not not just yeah. a, a lecturer and consultant by trade but also a lecturer and uh within the house <laughs> within the yeah in the family the, the, the one thing i realized is uh is respect can be a, a, a difficult thing in the household so you know um kids probably wouldn't listen to me trying to give them advice on maths and science because i'm their dad but they would listen to a friend or a teacher a lot more and i found that found that quite interesting that that dynamic there that well actually you're my dad so what do you know about this yeah 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 exactly okay we're talking about accumulating different hats and many different hats that you've accumulated over the course of your career as a as a lecturer support staff within parasport going to the rio olympics experiences in the in the military in premier league football in uh, academy cricket just give us a little hitchhike on on how you come came to kind of accumulate all of those experiences and, and how you got to where you are now oh yeah okay I'll do my best um, and I think it is a hitchhike as well <laughs> I think that's a great word to describe it um, you know my first experience really in applied work was um, you know I had a background in cricket um, that that was my sport mm. and kind of when I did my MSc many many years ago you know I, I wanted to work in cricket that was probably one of my motivations for, for for pursuing sports psychology was to work in in that sphere so therefore any opportunity to work in that area was something that I was keen to do and I was fortunate at the time that you know um, connected and uh, established I guess a friendship a long-standing friendship with Professor Chris Harwood and uh, who, who is now a colleague you know, it gave me an opportunity at Nottinghamshire and, um, you know, to get on board with the academy. And that was kind of like my first proper exposure, I suppose, in, in a professional organisation. Mm. And from there on, you know, my applied experiences kind of just then followed us. And I suppose it's one of these where, you know, you have some experience, you have some understanding and you go to conferences or you know, you might get involved as I did with, within some work with the ECB and then that leads to somewhere else. And then I, I, through Chris as well, I did some work at Nottingham Forest um, through some existing contracts that he had. And then from Nottingham Forest, you know, it was then kind of 
I guess got asked to do some work within the FA and then within the FA I then got into the para stuff which I've been doing since 2014 which then led to the Paralympics um, and, and then I suppose you know my research is was always I was always interested in yeah concept you know theory you know theory is is king in my, in my view but also mm how you take theory to the coalface and being able to translate that. So for, for, for me, good theory is something that I can use and apply mm. rather than maybe something that just resides in a textbook or looks good on a diagram. For me, it has to lead to practical change. So I was always quite obsessed with you know this idea of if I was going to work in cricket, how could I make somebody bowl better or bat better or bat more consistently? And therefore, I suppose my research interests have kind of followed that so you know first of all started around the idea of hypnosis and how we could use that um, and then looking at how we can bring about changes within teams and then I suppose more recently through the great work and, and collaborations with Dr Matt Slater looking at leadership from a social identity perspective and how we mm. use identity to shape groups but also how we use it to influence leadership and and that then influenced the work that we do within the REF. So, um, you know, we've taken that more recently in, into that field. Yeah, so, it, it, you know, I often look back and think, crikey, how, how have I, you know, crikey, there's a lot more, there's a lot of people who have got a lot more experience than me, but I think I've been very, very fortunate. I probably was always prepared to have a go as well. And um, I've never been great at networking. I've not particularly you know it's not something I enjoy so therefore I don't think it's that I think it was just you know through my supervisor Professor Mark Jones who was you know a great advocate of the, of, of the things I was trying to do I think he gave you the confidence or the tried to push you in the right direction and then from there on you then establish connections and relationships that, that then lead to opportunities and mm. I've, I've always tried to live my life um I was probably based on parents really around this idea of no regrets you know give something a go and if it doesn't work well at least you had a go and I tried to take that into every experience and as, as I got older I feel more comfortable that you know I'm not going to be successful or effective in every situation I go into mm. but but that idea of well you know what, what's the worst that could happen here you know give it a go I've always tried to to take that into every situation I have and you know I have been very fortunate to, to be around, you know, elite military groups recently, um, spent some time with those guys, you know, fascinating. And, you know, I've worked with lawyers, I've worked with medics, I've worked with um, blue chip organisations, you know, I never thought I'd be doing this stuff, but generally it's, it's come about through people that you come into contact with, you have a connection with, and I think they might see the value in maybe how, you perhaps present your ideas or some of the ideas that you have and, and want to give it a go and yeah um but but I often feel quite fruitless when I'm trying to give advice to people that I supervise or you know PhD students I often feel yeah I'm not sure there's ever been a <laughs> it's going to sound quite bad I'm not sure there's ever been a coherent strategy and, and talking to you Pete you know around strategy and marketing you you, you know you know I realize I'm I'm talking to an expert there and uh well what was the what was the quote from from Mike Tyson? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> but I don't think I've ever had a plan. I think that's the thing. 
So just the punches for you then. <laughs> it is. I, th- I think I've got good at dealing with them. Yeah, but yeah. I think the plan has always been to, you know, um, try to try to do as as good a job as you can, both research and practice and teach, you know, research, practice and teaching. But just to kind of see where I could go, you know, the challenge is always with myself, I suppose. And, mm. and um, yeah, I'm not really sure what the plan is. Um, there is a plan. I'm, I'm being quite playful, I suppose. You know, there, there is a plan in terms of a goal and an aspiration, but um, how I get there is, is probably less precise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll return to that because I think there's something quite interesting in in that, um, and and also the crossover work coming out of of not just sport but working in the military, uh, medicine, law business i think that'd be really interesting to get into as well but i want to reflect on your your journey there how the way that you describe it seems like this kind of this kind of this waterfall kind of starting off in cricket but then that led to Knott's forest which led to the fa which led to para stuff paralympics and etc etc it's it, it kind of at the time did you kind of notice how these kind of doors were opening to you when you were working and and did that make you kind of reflect on actually if I just give something a go and and do and work really hard then other things tend to open up so did did that kind of appear to you is that something you reflected on at the time that I don't necessarily need to have this this concrete plan because if I just commit to these values of doing good work and working hard things tend to just kind of work out yeah yeah, and, and actually, as you're saying it, saying that and feeding that back, that probably is it. You know, that yeah, definitely. That when I seem to put invest lots of effort, that there, there seem to be opportunities that came about. But but you know, I, I'm, I've worked with and I've, I've been I benefit from working with some excellent colleagues that you know I, I'm more than comfortable to call my friends as well, and you know that they are integral and have had excellent PhD students and have excellent PhD students and and they you know help to drive some of the ideas that that I might have and or we might develop between ourselves so I think you know that there are there are a lot of good um, people that have supported the things that I've been interested in or have, have been prepared to maybe share some of that ethos as well around well let's have a go here you know, and I think back to when Martin Turner and, and myself started to do some work with with Sony. You know, it was an environment that we mm. ev- never worked in before, and but because of a connection that we had and and the confidence that they gave us, you know, we were prepared to give it a go. And from the back of that, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that really gave us a real kickstart into actually. Do you know what we we're pretty comfortable in this environment and. Nobody laughed at us. Nobody told us we were useless. What actually we got was a lot of positive feedback, and we we got some really nice um, some nice data, and we did some really nice work. So mm. I think there is that idea, definitely, that the harder I worked, certainly, I think the per, probably the two to three years after finishing my PhD, you know, I I uh, co-authored a, a book, um, I co-authored a special issue. Um, I probably did lots of conference presentations, workshops. I was doing a lot of applied work as well. You know, that period there was 
on reflection was probably where I invested a lot, a lot of effort. And equally, at the same time, we had our first child. Mm. And, you know, I look back there and some of my working practices I'm not, I'm not proud of. You know, I, I would get up at six o'clock. I'd be in work for seven. I'd be maximising that time before people got in. I suppose you know to do the to do the normal hours. Um, there would be a lot of evenings. There would be, and again, I'm not proud of it. Um, you know, probably two out of every four weekends as well that were that were dedicated. Yeah. But you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself. But but was that valuable? Um, it's a difficult one. Um, it was valuable in the sense that it probably helped to create some opportunities. Yeah. But then the cost of that, you know, is at the time I, I didn't realise what the cost was because, you know, I was a lot younger. You have a lot more energy. You're obviously very passionate, enthusiastic, you know, two years out of a PhD, yeah. you know, your world is your oyster. But then the cost of that, you know, I quite quickly realised, or didn't probably quickly realise, but I certainly realised at some point that that's just not sustainable. That and and neither is it good or healthy, you know. Like mm. I stopped playing cricket. I reduced the amount of times I played golf. Physical activity seemed more of a means to an end rather than a, a thing I enjoyed. Yeah. It, it was, you know, the work was the focus. So, you know, I, a lot of the support I try to give to people I supervise is you know that can only work for a period but actually if you can avoid not doing that I'd highly recommend it because <laughs> I'm just not sure it's a good thing to do yeah it sounds uh, I'm getting a bit of deja vu here the second ever episode of, of the podcast with Richard Keegan we we talked to a lot about these themes and um, it's really interesting to to see them come up again one of the things we discussed at the time was Having been through that cycle, and you know, you see that over a, a, in a lot of different industries. Ariana Huffington's written, written a book about it called Thrive, about how she, you know, got to the point of burnout and now looks back and, th- and thinks she she might have done it a bit differently. Um, yeah. But also the the kind of I think it's something you're getting to here, the awareness that actually telling the younger versions of ourselves that or telling younger people who are going through that period now, it's quite hard to convince because they'll see people who've got to that position and go, well, actually, you went through that, that tumultuous period and you came out the other side and, you know, the work that you put in has, has got you there. And I think what, mm. what was quite interesting that Richard said in that, uh, that interview was I kind of, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, I think even telling my younger self, would be hard to con- convince him otherwise, but actually just making people aware of the potential costs means that they can go into that period with their eyes open, knowing that they, they're kind of making a conscious choice about how they want to structure their lives. Um, and I wonder whether in our industry, it is maybe getting through a wee bit more. I mean, I'm seeing loads more articles now about self-care of stage two trainees. I myself have been asked to participate in probably about five MSc studies around the self-care of uh, being a stage two trainee even the last couple of years so even just having that literature out there for people to be able to see and learn from is 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 pretty useful i think yeah massive i mean i completely agree with the the self-care stuff and and even you know the the, the reflections that you're given around around richard and um 
you know, I think if I was to have a conversation with my younger self, it would be difficult, you know, still to convince myself that, you know, ease off. But I suppose what I try to do now is role model, try to give a positive role model to those that I work with. And I'm always conscious of, you know, when I send emails or, you know, the deadlines I would expect and, and trying to role model that, that, you know, I'm not sending emails at ridiculous times or, or anything like that. And, and almost try to encourage this idea that, you know, if you do choose to work in the evening or whatever it is, make sure that's your choice. Make sure that it's because it's intrinsically valuable to you mm. and, you know, almost, dare I say it, kind of a hobby. And, and, and I suppose that was the other thing as well, that when I look back to the, that really intense period, I did enjoy it. <laughs> and I do enjoy investing the intrinsic value of you know working on books or a chapter or a paper so so it's, it's sometimes difficult to to see that as work it's just it's, but but that can be that, that can be dangerous and i think you know it's that how do you how are you motivated are you motivated by the outcome so i've just got to get a number of papers or i've got to submit a number of grants or are you motivated through the journey and for me it was very much the intrinsic satisfaction mastery it was all those and and but again the thing to probably realize is that there can be a cost of that mm. so we're all encouraged that intrinsic motivation is really good but but actually i think that can still lead to a dangerous path as well because you know again where do you draw the line where do you stop seeking mastery or satisfaction or enjoyment yeah um i think the self-care stuff is is massive and you, you know i uh, probably I update my LinkedIn profile, I think, every year, and, and, and it seems to come around every every year very quicker, or well, much quicker than it does, probably because I'm getting older, but I, I add the year on to the number of years practice I've had, and I think I'm now into 21 years or something of being an applied practitioner, and I, and I would say for about 14 or 15 years of that, I dealt with a hell of a lot of people's crap, mm -hmm. and I'd probably done very little with it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd spoke to colleagues about challenging clients and we set up a peer supervision group, but there wasn't really too much that we could base stuff on, you know, where you look at clinical, you know, and peer supervision is an integral aspect yeah. of any practitioner. I think in sport, we're massively behind the curve. Um, and what I start to see now, which I think is brilliant, is that there is a network of stage two trainees who, who seem to be providing those things. And, it, it is massive because if you think about it, you, but, but you are dealing with people's problems generally, mm -hmm. you know, whichever approach you take, you know, they're, they're talking to you about their challenges. And if we're not careful, you know, we just fill up, we fill up very, very quickly and we need to get rid of that stuff. Some, you know, the self-care, um, you know, the working hours, you know, when I've been on, on tours, when I've been to tournaments, and, and thankfully now I work for, for organisations where we have working hours. But, you know, there has been expectations where you get up at seven and you're going to bed at 10. And whilst you're not doing what we might define as structured work, you, you're still being asked, you're still observing, you're still sitting in meetings, you're still contributing and, and you're on, as it were. And yeah. you, you do that for three weeks. You know, I defy anybody to function effectively after doing that for three weeks. So, it, yeah, I think that self-care stuff is, is is really, really key and, and people need to to be mindful of that, definitely. Yeah.
Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, the kind of the higher up the you know, traditional career ladder you go, the more you're having to, to take on and protect people below you in the hierarchy from um, one, one of the supposed kind of traditional responsibilities of a leader is to try and kind of spread a sense of calm, even in periods that we've just gone through, yeah. um, which means that you're trying to actively hide what you might be thinking and that that needs an outlet. So mm. using other people is is so important. Um, and the, the peer supervision, it's interesting you bring that up as a, a colleague of mine that I'm training with called Hannah Winter, who every month I seem to hear she's she's a, a member of another peer supervision group. She's uh, started off her training in the UK, but is now based in Canada. I think she's got a training group in Canada, one in one or two in the UK. Um, and I think you're right. I think it's a, a great way of of being able to kind of share what you're working on, but also learn from others. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it's something I think we, we, we generally do it. I say we, you know, the guys that I would work with and collaborate with, you know, we, we tend to do it quite informally now but definitely we are aware that that network is there and we can share ideas and share challenging clients or difficult situations that we're dealing with and I just think it 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 is such an integral part of not only self-care but also development as well and you know viewing it as CPD as well investment in yourself Mm. um you, you know some of the things that I've done in recent years where I've probably taken a bit more of a step back and said, I need to invest in myself a little bit here for, for the reasons that you talk about, you know, if you're, if you're leading or if you're supervising, how can you manage yourself better? And I, th- I think one of the things I often struggled with was this idea that, well, maybe that's quite selfish to invest in yourself and mm. it's selfish to prioritize those things, but it sits a bit more better now because I, I think I'm just trying to, you know, um, I'm being I'm being more comfortable with trying to be the best version of myself, but also managing my challenges, difficulties, uh, and my well-being as well. I know that you know there are certain things I need to do personally that enable me to function at a level that I'm comfortable with, but also as well recognizing that you know there's days where I'm just not going to be at it, and feeling comfortable with that as well and I love, I love it yeah and I, I yeah I, I just don't have the energy I Jesus I sound, sound like a bloody 60 odd or something but I think <laughs> I think the idea that you know I, you can't function at 110% every day and I think as I've mm. gone through some experiences probably in the last three years I've realized that it, it's it's okay to be an 80 or a 70 or even a 50 at sometimes you, you know, I'm feeling comfortable with that and recognizing in my diary the days I need to recover. And that's not, I'm conscious that who would watch this and or who would listen to this, that's not like, well, I'm just going to put my feet up. It, it's recognizing it's like if I've had a day of, you know, maybe where I've traveled a lot or I've, you know, delivered a workshop or a presentation or something that might be perceived as quite high, you know, highly stressful. Mm-hmm. It's kind of then looking at what I can do that day or the day after to to aid with recovery. Mm. You know, can I take an opportunity to, you know, go for a walk or, you know, just spend some time reflecting or working on something that's intrinsically motivating, but also quite controllable by me as well that I've got control over. And sometimes that's, I can do that. 
sometimes you know there are meetings and there's teaching and there's all sorts of stuff that you have to do so but I think I'm a lot more mindful of those opportunities mm-hmm. um, and the influence that they would have and and I think that you know that that probably feeds into how I work with athletes now I think my focus has changed a lot with athletes around how I operate um, I'm a big one now asking them around for focusing around the well-being type stuff you know sleep routines recovery strategies mm. you know what what are you doing to, to do those things well because they're going to influence not only you as the person but you as the athlete yeah i've gone off on one a bit there pete sorry <laughs> not at all i think that was that was a, a series of a series of good tangents um one thing in there i think is quite interesting because at the the start of the podcast you said you don't enjoy networking and yet you're focused on a lot of these places uh, and appreciation of the impact other people have had on your work. You've mentioned Chris Harwood, Martin Turner, um, Mark Jones, uh, Matt, Matt Slater, all of your PhD students, this idea of peer supervision, using others at the same time. So you don't enjoy networking, but you do enjoy people. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, massively. Yeah, and I, and I get a lot out of, you know, I've been, I've spent a lot of time with uh, Roy White, who did the MSc at Staffs, and Roy worked was in worked in Sony for many many years, and uh, within HR. and And Roy is somebody that you know uh, I look up to. Um, he would be a mentor, I suppose, in many senses, and a friend. And the one thing I've mm-hmm. always observed about Roy is he, he's great at getting the right people in the room to solve a problem, and I kind of witnessed that from him and have seen him do it. But also I've seen the satisfaction and enjoyment that he gets from doing that. And I think probably Roy doesn't always or hasn't always got, but probably doesn't seek either the recognition. But but what he is comfortable with is is the realization that you know he's he's coordinated this in some way and has got the right people in. And I think I've I've drawn a lot from that. I get a hell of a lot of satisfaction where I can put give somebody an opportunity, and they thrive in that and they enjoy it, and it maybe helps them to do what they want to do. And I think that's probably you know. And then they might just say something like, "Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks." You know, that's probably worth more than most and I I do get a, a lot of sense out of those connections I you know I I love being a part of a team I always have done but I've always struggled with that kind of self-promotion getting yourself out there type thing I just doesn't sit comfortably with me don't tell my wife that because um probably doing myself out of a lot of cash potentially but um <laughs> but, uh, but but I do struggle with that because I almost feel like, well, you know what? Yeah, why would you want? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a confidence thing, maybe. You know, why would you want me to do that? There are probably other people that can do it. But I'm more than happy to influence to get the people that I know to do a job in there, and I, and I get a lot of satisfaction out from that. Seeing other people grow, I think as well. Mm. You know, I think one of my proudest achievements, if you like, is is the people that I've supervised or have come through MSc programs or PhDs and, and the excellent things that they're doing. I sit back and think, well, actually, if I've had 1% input there, you know, and then, then I'm more than happy, you know, that's get a real sense out of that nurture and development. And yeah, yeah, it's just, again, I don't know where I'm going with this beat other than 
I don't like networking in the, the formal sense, but I do like getting people together and I enjoy mm. that social interaction of probably people that I'm comfortable with as well. I think that's the thing. I'm, I'm never great at that first introduction, but once I know people, you know, I think my friends would t- tell me or tell you that it's probably a side that, you know, they don't always expect. Mm. There's something kind of intrinsic in the word networking. Mm. I don't know, something that's just in, been imbued in it, maybe by kind of business books and TVs and movies and, and stuff like that, just makes it feel quite forced and sycophantic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But networking can be quite natural, can't it? I mean, networking is also just speaking to a friend or a friend of a friend. If you go to a conference and you see someone that you know and they're talking to someone that you don't know, you might just be introduced by by them, and that's that's not you coming into it with a uh, a sense of I want to get something out of someone. That's just you chatting to someone that you know and 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 me, maybe meeting someone new. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. No, it, it, no, definitely, I can relate to that for sure. Yeah, but but I think you know the, the big reflection for me is that getting a sense of enjoyment from you know working with people, you know, you know, and being influenced by those people as well and not professing to be the expert, you know, expert to some level, but working with PhD students that, you know, the value of those and trainees and QCEP is that I'm learning every day. And selfishly, that's why I want to do those things because I'm picking up stuff and they're telling me stuff. And I think that's, that's a fortunate position to be in, in academia or in, in, in a, you know, as a practitioner that you, Every day is a school day, and that's really valuable. So, a lovely start to the season, and indeed the two-part episode with Dr. Jamie Barker there. And already we've covered so much ground, talking about everything from parenting and homeschooling to theory-based practice and networking for the networking of Earth. One thing you wouldn't have known, but I was fortunate to be partial to, was Jamie's Zoom background, which was a room full of Man United collateral, shirts, signed posters, framed kit and all other kinds of keepsakes. I loved Jamie's den of memorabilia so much I asked whether I could take a screenshot of our Zoom call, so I will post a picture of that on Twitter uh, with Jamie's consent, and so make sure to check that out. So what did we hear in that first part with Jamie? There was some really nice stuff early on around the ironic benefits of losing work but then breaking the cycle of the nomadic life of a sports psychologist and being able to spend more time with the family. And a nice little soundbite around theory doesn't have to reside in a textbook, it should be something that leads to practical change. But there was one topic I'd like to linger on and that is self-care. Firstly, I really enjoyed Jamie's nuanced approach to the well-being and work-life balance debate. Whilst he admits being not proud of some of his previous work practices, he also reflects that much of it he enjoyed, almost in quotes, like a hobby. And he also draws an important distinction between work that you voluntarily take on because it's interesting or it's enjoyable or it's intrinsically satisfying versus being forced to work unreasonable hours and breaking the rarely enforced European Working Time Directive. It reminds me of an interesting passage in, and I hope I get this pronunciation right, Mihai Cheek sent Mihai's seminal book, Flow 
where the author argues that the associations that have become attached to the word work can often detract from the reality of the work that you might be doing. Specifically, he writes, When it comes to work, people do not heed the evidence of their senses. They disregard the quality of the immediate experience and base their motivation instead on the strongly rooted cultural stereotype of what work is supposed to be like. They think it's an imposition, a constraint, an infringement on their freedom and therefore something to be avoided. Now he goes on to lay down a really interesting provocation about how we then choose to spend our leisure time, once we've inverted commas, escaped from work arguing that we too easily default to the path of least resistance activities such as television that offer easy and immediate structure. Cheeksent Mihai posits that, unlike work, free time is unstructured and requires more effort to be shaped into something that can be enjoyed. Hobbies that demand skill, habits that set goals and limits, personal interests, discipline, it all helps make leisure what it's supposed to be. But Jamie also offers valuable words of wisdom to those that might see work as intrinsically enjoyable time that can happily bleed into the evenings and weekends. And that is around long-term sustainability and self-maintenance. I really liked his soundbite, you can't function at 110% every day. And that I've come to realize it's okay to be at a 70 or an 80 or even at a 50 sometimes. I will even put in the diary days where I might recover. This chimes with discussions I've had with support staff within national sport bodies that have reported blocking in things like sleep, family time and hobbies with their athletes. And what they've said to me is, yes, the value is number one, because doing those things, physical recovery and connecting with loved ones is good for general well-being, but number two, because it's also intended to have positive performance consequences. As Jamie says, having some time operating at a lower intensity makes it more likely we can sustain 110% when we're required to turn it on. And in terms of a nice little anecdotal reference linked to that, the book 11 Rings by LA Lakers and Chicago Bulls head coach Phil Jackson is littered with really interesting examples of how he used meditation from Zen Buddhism, not only for himself but for the players in order to facilitate a high quality off switch. The scientifically minded of you out there will tell me to beware looking at such successful case studies and extrapolating assumptions to infer that they apply universally. And to you, I would say fair comment. But all in all, I am seeing and reading more and more evidence and literature out there advocating for this quality off time, this quality off switch, this quality rest time. And if you've got any evidence, case studies or something you've read that feeds into this debate, please feel free to reach out and share. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you can email me if you want as well. Right, so before we end, a quick teaser for the part two of this episode with Jamie. In the second part of our conversation, we dig into the Rio Olympics, Premier League football, the military, and then we look at running themes and patterns across these varied and different types of environments. So make sure to keep an eye out for part two. Right, all that's left to say is thanks again to Jamie for generously giving up his time. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at, at Dr. Jamie Barker. Thanks again for listening and until next time, have a good one.